Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility Family of Journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of FNS Unplugged. I'm your co-host, Pietro Bordeletto, and as always, I'm joined by my trio of co-hosts, Dr. Dalen James, Dr. Blake Evans, and Dr. Molly Cornfield. The three of you, how are you? I got to say, I'm doing great today, guys. I look forward to recording this podcast pretty much all month, and I'm just so glad that the day has arrived. Can't wait to get started. It's a real shame that they don't put out more editions of FNS Science reports and reviews because we got to give the people what they want. I think they'd go for a daily podcast if we could uh, muster up the material. I think we can make time for that, and I'm doing fantastic. It's 102 degrees outside in Oklahoma City, 72 degrees in my office. Pretty excited about that. Very excited to record today. Not looking forward to editing daily podcasts for you guys. That's a bit too much. Oh, come on. I'd like to think it'd become more streamlined and uh, tighter, but probably not. Well, in an effort to try to make it streamlined and tight, we're going to cut out the pleasantries and we're going to jump straight into the science. And by science, I, of course, mean not FNS science. I mean FNS reviews. I know that was a hard pivot, but I did it. We have a really nice set of articles today. We're going to start off with, of course, um, the non-traditional article type, the comprehensive review. And we're going to double down on non-traditional. And this is an article that's really geared towards male fertility, a topic that we don't spend enough time on, but when we have a good article, it's kind of worth sharing and talking about. This is a cool article and that the senior author is one of our very own interactive associates, Dr. Thomas Masterson from the University of Miami. So kind of a double whammy for us. I feel like I'm ready to present the article, but it's not mine. So I'm going to turn it over to Blake, who's going to tell us a little bit more about his article from FNS Reviews. Thank you, Pietro. And don't even present my article. This is mine. So back off, please. Um, so this article is entitled The Adverse Effects of Commonly Used Medications on Male Fertility, a Comprehensive Review by first author Armin Gomishi. Boris Yang and Thomas Masterson, as you had mentioned. This article is extremely relevant to anyone who practices reproductive medicines because a lot of these medications that I'm going to summarize in this article are taken by pretty much everyone. So this is nonetheless very important information for us to be cognizant of as physicians when we're counseling our patients, when we're prescribing these medications and so on. So here we go. As we all know, infertility affects as many as one in eight couples and a recent definition change by the World Health Organization to even define it as as common as one in six couples, nonetheless extremely common. But there are estimates that suggest that male fertility may be in part responsible for as high as 40% of these couples. There's an increasing number of young men taking medications for chronic conditions such as hypertension, psychiatric illnesses, autoimmune disorders, pain management, etc. However, despite long-term indications for these treatments, the adverse effects on fertility is not well recognized. And nonetheless, this review serves to present the most compelling information of commonly prescribed drugs and its impact on male infertility. So the authors selected both in vivo and in vitro animal studies 
They also looked at retrospective and prospective human studies, and they looked at human case reports. So what do they find? I'm just going to go through these medications, summarize their findings and how it impacts fertility, and just be mentioning little tidbits of how we need to be cognizant of these, basically. So the first, PPIs, proton pump inhibitors. These increase the gastric acid pH, resulting in impaired absorption of things such as vitamin B and other micronutrients, highlighting the potential mechanism that might contribute to decreased semen quality by preventing the absorption of these. They are also known to act on the proton potassium ATPase on the sperm plasma membranes, and therefore suggesting that PPIs may induce impaired sperm maturation because they're inhibiting these enzymes. Also, proper lytic cell function is dependent on these proton pumps, and so therefore inhibition may explain altered hormonal production that some studies have alluded to with taking these. The good thing is, as with most of these medications, this is reversible, and these findings are also usually seen if it's been about 6 to 12 months of taking these medications, taking it longer than that. So the next category of medications they look at are antidepressants, such as SSRIs, a very, very common prescription medication. These are notorious for leading to decreased libido, erectile dysfunction, delayed ejaculation, as well as possibly anorgasmia. There are also reports of taking SSRIs that can lead to severe oligosynospermia, and that is also, again, reversible after the discontinuation of these medications. So in addition to this, most prescribed SSRIs such as fluoxetine, paroxetine, and citalopram inhibit androgen production and also increase aromatase production, thus increasing circulating estrogen levels and subsequently decreased permatogenesis and libido. Next is immunosuppressants. I know we, we may not have a tremendous amount of patients on these, but certainly something to be cognizant of. And this is more directed towards the adolescents that may be on these medications for autoimmune disorders. But patients can have medication, or excuse me, can have problems such as psoriasis, transplant surgeries, autoimmune conditions such as lupus, inflammatory bowel disorder, multiple sclerosis, just to name a few. And the mechanism is not entirely clear how these medications can lead to abnormal sperm parameters. Meds such as methotrexate, for example, inhibits dihydrofolate reductase, inhibiting the production of purine and pyrimidines, and thus resulting in DNA damage and germ cell toxicity. The authors discuss that while patients should obviously not stop their medications for these chronic diseases, instead healthcare providers can recommend continuous monitoring of sperm parameters and hormone levels for these patients and also freezing sperm. Uh, now, as I'm saying this, do our clinicians on the podcast offer freezing sperm commonly for people who have these conditions I've mentioned so far? You know, I think the problem is it's the patient in front of you. Like, do they show up requesting it? You, you know, in a perfect world, the word's out to some of these docs who are starting patients on some of these therapies and they're savvy enough to refer them to us. But I would say very infrequently do I see a patient who self-identified and say, I think I'm worried about these meds. I'd like to free sperm first. Do you, is it any different in Oklahoma or in Portland, Molly? No, no I, similar scenario here. I mean, I think that the autoimmune conditions, those on occasion, we might get a patient referred here or there, but it, it's not very often that I see it. Molly, how about you? Yeah, the medications that we all know are gonadotoxic, they usually get referred and uh, can bank with us. But I mean, I've never seen someone freeze sperm before starting a PPI, for example, but right. it's not an immunosuppressant in the same way. Right, right. Such a common medication. No one's going to probably think about that. 
thus the whole point of this article uh, to just raise awareness essentially. So the next few medications I'm going to go over are extremely common, one of which is, uh, I believe I've talked about a couple podcasts previously about this, but exogenous hormone use, very, 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 very common in Oklahoma. I don't know how common it is in your practice, but very well-meaning physicians, primary care doctors, for example, uh, will talk to a male and the male say, yeah, I'm tired, man. Okay, well, here's testosterone and the sperm is zero. And then they come and see me a year later have no idea that their testosterone is affecting their sperm parameters. And so I see this extremely commonly. It's an epidemic in, in Massachusetts too. There's kind of a very at-risk population of men. And for me, it's firefighters uh, and police officers for whatever mm -hmm. reason. And I would say more likely than not, they're either on it or have recently been on it. And I asked one of them the other day, what's the deal? What's going on? Why are all these cops and firefighters on testosterone? And they told me that someone will come around to the police station or the fire department and slap a flyer on and say, did you know that firefighters are 10 times more likely to have low T? Are you tired? Do you feel like your libido is not as good? Maybe you could have low T. Get yours checked. They get it checked. It's normal. It's straddling normal. It's never low. Sometimes it is, but most of the time it's fine. And someone sells them a $500 a month subscription where the testosterone injections show up to their house every month and they lose their sperm and then their partner's wondering why they're infertile rinse wash and repeat just an absolute epidemic and i don't i can't wrap my head around you said well-meaning doctors do they just not know mm -hmm. that it has a real negative impact on reproductive potential and reproductive age men um, or do they think it's it doesn't matter and they'll find out about it the hard way i, I can't wrap my head around it yeah I think we need to start making flyers and put them in the clinics that put those flyers in the firefighters uh, locations and say, quit making these men infertile. So yeah, that definitely very uh, valid points, very common. So, um, but as you know, this testosterone is aromatized to estrogen, therefore causes negative feedback to FSH, LH, pulsatility, and therefore decrease in androgen production as well as spermatogenesis. So, but again, it is fortunately reversible after coming off of it. Um, and then the last couple that I'll mention, very common, calcium channel blockers, patients with hypertension. And this one got a little bit more into the physiology and the mechanisms as to why this might lead to infertility, which my nerdy side of uh, being an REI really enjoyed this. But they discuss even that the uh, mature sperm will irreversibly bind to the zone of pellucida, as we all know, and a normal uh, fertilization and lead to a process called acrosome reaction, which triggers a downstream calcium dependent cascade. And this permits the ovum penetration and then subsequent fertilization kind of in a, um, a brief summary of that. So this is all mediated by mannose or sugar receptors on the sperm head. Why am I even saying all of this? Well, calcium channel blockers has been associated with a decreased percentage of sperm expression of these mannose ligand bindings on the sperm head. And there's a small study that even shows that in men who switch from calcium channel blockers to ARBs, like Losartan, for example, this will increase their surface expression of this mannose ligand binding sites. And so I thought that was really interesting, something that I did not know before reading this. And then the last couple of ones that I'll mention are NSAIDs. Obviously, a lot of people take these. There's some data that shows there's an association between this and decreased sperm parameters. And then lastly, alpha blockers, for example, like BPH or prosthetic hypertrophy, something that honestly, we probably won't deal with a whole lot in our patients and reproductive age men. However, 
of course, we can still have patients with this. So this can lead to issues with an ejaculation and and or retrograde ejaculation. So something to certainly keep in mind. And then lastly, as all great FNS reviews papers have, there is a wonderful table summarizing all of this at the very end. So Daylon, you can sink your claws into that as you do with most good tables to build your repertoire for being a clinician one day. So pretty lengthy paper, a lot of really good information that's packed into this. Really encourage all of y'all to read on it. And as always, these tables that they have in these papers are, are really good for patient counseling, very succinct, have a lot of good information, and it shows what the data is summarizing and possible alternatives that we can prescribe as physicians. So uh, any thoughts on this paper, guys? You know, Blake, I love a good table. I love this table. But uh, I think that this article is just maybe a bit on the risk of uh, too much information. Um, and that's my unschooled non. I mean, you, you got to tell me how I'm going to be a clinician one day, Blake. You got to remind me. And it's a state of mind, partner. In my right. mind, I'm treating. But um, I have to say, from that naive standpoint, I have to, to ask you guys and defer to you. Isn't this a bit too much? Uh, and maybe it's kind of like cart before the horse. I've always admired R-E-I-R-T because of the pragmatism uh, of it. You know, a healthy baby. That's what we want at the end of the day. Don't you like see a poor sperm count and then look for reasons? Or is this like you got to come in with like, hey, uh, like you said, I'm taking these this ibuprofen, freeze my sperm. I think it maybe is a bit a bit uh, more information than most people need. But I, I defer to you guys. My approach with some of this stuff is we do a semen analysis first before I worry about any of these meds. And if the semen analysis looks great. I don't know that I'm going to spend a whole lot of time perseverating on the meds or getting them to change their blood pressure meds or making them sit upright for an hour instead of being on a PPI. Um, I'm going to kind of plow forward with a good semen analysis. But if I have a good semen analysis and I have underwhelming fertilization, poor embryo development, if there's other stuff that I think are kind of sperm driven, then yeah, I may go back and dig like, hey, just to clarify, are you on any supplements? Are you on any medications? Anything behavioral that you're doing that could be affecting how your sperm are working despite having good concentration? But you're right. It's a lot to kind of tackle in your first initial patient visit to understand what's going on, but also do some counseling on like, oh, you got to go talk to your PCP. This PPI is ruining your chances. Yeah, it's definitely not going to be cost effective to uh, be freezing sperm for everyone before they start some ibuprofen. But I do think this table is a good reference to kind of place behind my desk. And when I'm prepping my charts and meeting a new couple or meeting a new person to be able to look through their med list and, hey, does anything stand out? I think someone needs to make an app. So we have all these apps for pregnancy and lactation. I would love an app with uh, medications for male fertility, female infertility. And then we could have sort of that same ranking system, A through E. Uh, and whoever develops this app, I definitely want to be in on it. Um, I don't have a, uh, I don't have a patent yet. The someone is you. I think that's a great idea. So I'm glad you volunteered yourself for that. And we will support you as your podcast co-hosts. And like any good thing in the field of reproductive medicine, you will find that there's one small study. And that's probably the only reason why we do or don't do something or the reason why we counsel someone for or against something is someone did that one small study once and either poisoned the well or opened the floodgates. You know, and speaking of too, um, one of the things the authors had mentioned, this is the last thing I'll mention on this, we'll move on to our next uh, study, but the authors had mentioned that 
sometimes will offer, the urologist will offer a varicoselectomy that might offer a slight improvement in sperm parameters. And you could argue that with these medications, if you have, they've been gone through several treatments, hey, what are some things we can modify? You might say, well, let's maybe switch from a calcium channel blocker to an ARB, for example. Maybe that'll help improve things slightly. So we do surgeries uh, to improve things very slightly. So uh, these medications are, are possibly going to just yield a, even a slight change in different parameters. So uh, I guess at the end of the day, every little bit counts, but certainly something to keep in the back of our minds. Well, that's a good segue to uh, my story, which is about perhaps un unintended consequences of treatment. In this case, testosterone, as you were talking about T, we had a whole debate about all those flyers and the scourge. But uh, this is a uh, testosterone that's actually being used towards its intended uh, end, gender affirming therapy. Okay, so gender identity has become a wedge issue in our society. And while this debate plays out on a societal level uh, at the grandest of stages, it's fundamentally and profoundly an individual quality, right? Gender identity is about yourself. And while there are many challenges for someone whose gender assigned at birth doesn't align with their perceived gender identity, there are also more options for them nowadays than ever before. Uh, for prepubertal trans males, one option for gender affirming therapy is the use of GnRH agonist to suppress puberty, thereby blocking feminine secondary sexual characteristics, followed later by testosterone treatment to align physical characteristics with uh, gender identity. Recent guidelines recommend use of gender-affirming hormone therapy in transmasculine youth as early as 14 years of age, uh, and there's an increasing number of adolescents that are seeking care. But there are, there are a lot of open questions regarding the influence of hormone therapy on fertility right? Uh, and that's what we care about. Um, and while the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, the Endocrine Society, ASRM, all have recommended that transgender youth discuss fertility preservation, less than 3% of people undergoing gender-affirming therapy underwent fertility preservation before starting transition. Um, now, in adults, there are cases of uh, case reports of successful hormone or of successful oocyte cryopreservation in transmasculine individuals, but studies were done before and the oocyte preservation was done uh, before starting hormone therapy. And these studies didn't evaluate IVF outcomes from those frozen and then thawed eggs. Studies in adults have been really scarce, and there's been a lot of variability in the timing and the formulation of the testosterone, and none of those individuals were pre-treated with uh, GnRH agonists, as is done in adolescence. Of course, it's tough. There's just not enough people who've undergone treatment with the standard of care that can be aligned for analysis, and the time it takes for these men to come back, follow up on their frozen oocytes is considerable. So how do we know what kind of effect that hormonal treatment is having on fertility? How do we counsel trans males who are undergoing hormonal therapy, whether they can expect similar oocyte yield or fertilization and live birth rates, whether they'll have to cease testosterone therapy and suffer the resultant physical mental dysphoria and for how long? Well, I'll tell you how. You got to start with mice, of course, at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor, work from Molly Moravec's group led by Cynthia De La Cruz, set up a very straightforward experiment to measure the influence of GnRH agonists and testosterone on fertility in trans male mouse model. 
They started with prepubertal female mice. That's mice that are four weeks old. And they introduced three discrete variables. Okay, the mice were implanted with a tablet secreting GnRH agonist or placebo. Then three weeks later, each of these groups was implanted either with the tablet secreting testosterone or placebo for an additional six weeks. And after those six weeks, each group was either superovulated immediately or after having the implant removed for an additional two weeks, a so-called washout, testosterone washout group. And what they found was encouraging. The cessation of testosterone resulted in yields that were not significantly different from controls at all. And while active treatment uh, with testosterone had a negative impact on outcome, those animals were still able to produce competent oocytes that went to blastocyst. Uh, they didn't see if they were fertile, live born, but blast, I think, is a, a good endpoint there. Um, and the pretreatment uh, with GnRH agonists, by the way, had zero influence at all. So that was kind of irrelevant. Yeah, I, I get it. These are mice and these results, uh, as the authors note, may not translate directly to human. Uh, and of course, there's a lot of open questions, I think, related to the duration of testosterone treatment in, in trans males, how that can affect how long they may have to undergo cessation or if at all. Uh, the effect that it may have on aneuploidy rates in, in humans, a uh, potential influence on the epigenetic status of the embryo is a big question in terms of like the life of that embryo and the person will become. But we've got to start somewhere. And this transmasculine mirroring model, I think more than anything, may provide a means of asking all those tough, bigger questions in a controlled context. So you guys tell me, does this study specifically inform your counseling and whether or not it does what, what do you think is the biggest outstanding question in the fertility treatment of trans patients in your eyes i would say you know with this study of course it's reassuring however i think duration of treatment is although this study doesn't directly address that per se but there are studies in the past that have um, but i think that's the the biggest thing, you know, if someone is wanting to undergo treatment and take hormonal medications, how long can they be on them before they possibly are affecting all of those questions that she would just ask Daylon? So again, reassuring, but I think that's probably my biggest outstanding question. Yeah, I'm really interested in how long someone should be off T and whether that can improve their outcomes. And if you're off six months or a year, how much better are things getting? I think all of our patients should be offered fertility preservation, but um, a 14-year-old experiencing severe gender dysphoria, that might not be the time that they're going to be able to freeze their oocytes. And so um, starting testosterone treatment is probably the best thing for them. Uh, and then figuring out what do we do down the line when they come back and are ready for fertility preservation. All right, well, let's move on to some more conventional ART work from FNS reports. I have this really cool study uh, done by first author, Jorge Sanyol and senior author Rafael Bernabel from Spain, entitled Conventional Follicular Phase Ovarian Stimulation versus Luteal Phase Stimulation in Suboptimal Responders, a randomized control trial. Start off by saying patients with suboptimal response, not suboptimal responders. The burden is not on the patient to respond appropriately. It happens. The ovaries are what they are. Now that we've gotten some of that technical detail out of the way, let me tell you a little bit about this study. These authors took 41 patients who were Poseidon category 1B or 2B. And for those that are a little less facile with the Poseidon criteria, aside from it being a really cool name, it's a helpful way to kind of stratify patients who have had a previous poor response to stimulation. 1B patients are those who are under 35, 
of an AMH of greater than 1.2, and then the first cycle had anywhere from four to nine eggs retrieved. 2B patients are those who are 35 and older with the exact same criteria, AMH of 1.2 or greater, four to nine eggs retrieved. These are the patients that they considered as having a suboptimal response to their first IVF cycle. They designed this study as a crossover study where patients cycle first either with a follicular phase start or luteal start. And then within 45 days to 180 days, they cycled again, but with the opposite kind of phase start. And patients were randomized at their first cycle to either starting in the follicular phase or the luteal phase. You may be wondering, why is this even a question that's worth looking at? Well, if you ever read or heard about the dual-stim protocol, there's a lot of debate on which phase is better. Where do you actually get more eggs? Do they behave the same way? And some people think it's the follicular phase. Some people think it's the luteal phase. So this study was really an effort to take the same patient cycling in different phases within a six-month period and showing that even outside of the regular duo-stim philosophy, do patients get a different or, or better response with one versus the other when they've previously had a poor ovarian response? Now, their primary objective here was to look at the number of eggs retrieved, and their secondary outcomes were the obvious ones, mature eggs, fertilization rate. They also did this a nice job of telling us a little bit about how much FSH medication was consumed and how long these cycles took, which are always kind of two knocks that people have about the luteal start is it takes a lot of medications and it takes a really long time. Now, here's the cool thing. I don't know if this is surprising or unsurprising. They've actually found that the number of eggs did not differ between patients starting in the follicular phase versus the luteal phase start. And the average number of eggs was around seven and a half to seven. And accordingly, the number of mature eggs did not differ. The fertilization rate did not differ either. To me, that kind of makes sense. I've used luteal phase starts in many different kinds of patients, not just patients with poor response. It's always kind of what I've seen that you get the same number of eggs, they mature well, they fertilize well. Blake and Molly, has that also kind of been your experience with luteal starts? Do you tell patients anything differently about a luteal start? Yeah, that's been pretty similar for me as well. I mean, this is something, admittedly, we're not, I, th I think the most common time I'm using it is, uh, or considered just a random start in for PREZ patients. Um, otherwise, I admittedly am not using it too often, but certainly helpful to know. I'm also thinking of the patient with, you know, the porous or suboptimal responder, as as the paper has phrased it. And getting them to sync up, maybe you want to have them on very minimal OCPs, if any at all, but yet their start date doesn't really, or when you want them to start up, doesn't work too well with their menstrual cycle or what date you have available. And so knowing that you have a little bit of flexibility, maybe the patient is, she's ovulated, we'll get a progesterone and confirm that, and then we can stem without any concern. So I, I certainly think it's very helpful to know that this is an option for those patients. Yeah, I've mostly had experience with this with fertility preservation patients. And I usually actually wait a little, if I can, if I have wiggle room from the oncologist, I wait a little longer after ovulation to start, if I can get three more days. But it's interesting, they start just four days after ovulation uh, with STEM and still got good results. So that's reassuring to me. And this is, this is four days after a urine LH surge was detected. So it's not necessarily after they've ovulated. It's like surge is starting to mount. Maybe a day or two later, you're actually starting STEM. So it's a pretty quick turnaround. Even sooner. Um, yeah. It's even sooner. 
I use luteal starts for a lot of patients, pretty much anyone who's not doing a fresh transfer, given the option. I don't think there's any downside to it. I think it sometimes also is nice in that it negates the issue of having to use luteal estrogen priming. If you're really thinking that that's something that may be beneficial for your patient, what's better than priming the luteal phase? Starting in the luteal phase, right? So I use it for these PGT patients. I use it for the egg freezers. I certainly use it for the fertility preservation patients, but this is a really nice kind of test case that it's also a very reasonable option in patients who have previously had a poor response. Fortunately, it's not gonna make anything better. There's no bonus egg, bonus fertilization, bonus maturity rate that's happening with the luteal start, but it doesn't appear to be inferior uh, to kind of your conventional follicular start. Part that was a little surprising for me in my experience, these cycles typically do run a little bit longer and do consume a little bit more meds as a result. They found no difference in the total amount of FSH dose or the duration of stim. That may be just a function that they started real quickly after a true LH surge and kind of almost even before a P4 could have really been positive. But I think probably a wash more similar than different. Massachusetts, the bit re- limiting step here for us for duo stim patients is just insurance approval. I typically don't have enough time to finish a cycle, get approval, and kind of start another cycle within that luteal phase. My financial coordinator, I think, would um, kill me if I tried to make her do that routinely. But in patients where I think self-pay or considering kind of non-conventional ways to stimulate the ovaries, the duo stim, I think, is a nice um, technique. This isn't duo stim in kind of the conventional way, but really kind of segregates the follicular and the luteal response and shows within the same patient that they're more similar than different, which is to me, I think, helpful and cool. Yeah. And one last thing I'll say about this too is, you know, of course, geographically where you practice is also plays into this a little bit too, because very few of my patients have any coverage. So if I have a suboptimal responder, if I have a patient who's ovulated in the luteal phase and now I'm stimming a corpus luteum and I'm eliminating doing a fresh transfer, that makes it a little tough because Many patients have aspirations to do PGT, but then after you go to retrieval, after you have very few of those fertilized, and then their progression is very suboptimal, then doing a fresh transfer suddenly becomes more of a, man, I, I, we might want to just go ahead and do this because I don't think we'll have anything to biopsy. So I will say without having insurance coverage, that is something we commonly run into in the state such as Oklahoma. So can I just clarify something? The language here in the final paragraph. In, in case you're wondering, yes, this was done in humans, Dalon, not in mice. Ah, uh, check. Follow-up question. Go ahead. Floor is yours. That would be in the language there. The first sentence of the, the final paragraph of the introduction, introduction, they state, the aim of the study was to test whether controlled ovarian stimulation in the luteal phase offers any advantage over the conventional follicular phase, dot, dot, dot. So is that just a, I mean, as you were saying there, non, non-inferiority here is a win. Am I right in thinking that? Or was the logic approaching it that maybe luteal would be better? Or is that just a, a misprint there? The duostim data actually said that the luteal phase cycle, the one that happened right after ovulation, was actually the one that gave you a few extra eggs and was a little bit more successful than the follicular phase retrieval. So that's why they kind of went into it with that assumption is like, oh, maybe a luteal phase start is just better no matter when you do it. The reality is there's probably something to that follicular retrieval followed immediately by that luteal retrieval. There's kind of this voodoo that I think is happening in the ovary. And some of it is maybe you're just puncturing the ovary and you're changing hippo signaling. Maybe you're leaving some small follicles unretrieved, and those are the ones that now grow in the luteal phase and gives you that bonus extra egg or two. Some of it's just greasing the wheels, and the over just works a little bit better the next time you stimulate it, particularly if it happens kind of quickly after the first stimulation. 
So they thought all of that would be true, but when you really disaggregate follicular luteal cycles within 45 days to up to 180 days apart, more similar than different. It's a bummer that it's not better. We're always looking for better, but I think the same is also useful from just a clinician flexibility, a patient flexibility. You're not leaving anything on the table by not doing one or the other. And yes, of course, it was done in humans. From a study design perspective, I like that they focused on the suboptimal responders. I think a lot of these studies end up being underpowered when you're expecting zero to three eggs. So by looking at that next group up, that might have given them more power to make these conclusions. Patients with suboptimal response. The response does not define them. This is a sticking point that I've been, this is a soapbox I've been on recently. I don't know why, but I think it's important. Thanks, Pietro. Patient-centered language. That's right. You know, Molly, let's finish off with you, the kind of the solid anchor of the podcast, bringing it home with an article from Consider This. Thanks, Pietro. So I found an interesting Consider This article this month. It's entitled, Can Artificial Intelligence Mitigate Disparities in Access to Fertility Care? by Olu Tunmike Kuyuro and Randy Goldman. Last month, we talked about an article about using AI for embryo selection in FNS science with Daylon. And while that could be cost savings, it requires a big upfront investment of an incubator with time-lapse imaging. And so I think this article nicely piggybacked that conversation of whether AI can create more cost savings and potentially more access to fertility care. The authors start with a really harrowing statistic that I think we're all pretty aware of. We're only meeting 24% of the demand for IVF in North America, and this lack of access predominantly is affecting Black and Hispanic patients. The authors also discuss how delayed access to care and unconscious and perhaps conscious bias can further worsen these disparities, and patients are being referred to fertility care later and are presenting at older ages in these underserved groups. I haven't been paying a ton of attention to AI, even though it's been in the news a lot, but there's a lot for me to learn in this article. So for example, they bring up this concept of algorithmovigilance, which I had to practice saying a few times before the recording. Have any of you guys heard of algorithmovigilance before? Am I even saying that right? This kind of feels like AI is trying to punk you. I think probably. (laughs) I say that phrase all the time, honestly. Every day, day. rolls off the tongue. Yeah, I've never heard of it. Well, basically, it's this concept that we have to be extra vigilant when we're deciding which data is going into our algorithm, specifically in this article referring to for fertility care, because there's a lot of bias in our data and in our research, and then this could introduce bias into our AI algorithms. So if the system that the machine is learning from is already flawed, then the output is going to still be flawed. So it's a concept I've seen a few news stories about AI, but I liked the way they applied this to fertility care and using AI in that setting. The authors also discuss economic projections that AI can offer cost savings of up to 5 to 10%, and they hope that this could potentially reduce costs for patients. Well, I think in our field specifically, AI may have even more cost savings than just 5 or 10%, because so much of what we already do that's so protocolized could be further outsourced to, say, a computer. And like we discussed with buying a time-lapse incubator, there can be a whole lot of upfront costs for an AI program to get going in a fertility clinic. And I wonder, would this cost end up falling on the patients? So is it going to make things more expensive or less expensive? 
In addition, the authors note that ethnic minorities are tending to have IVF at a lower volume clinic and have lower success rates overall. And the authors do propose that if we're sharing data between our clinics, this could potentially decrease these disparities so that care becomes more equitable across clinics. The AI is choosing the time to trigger, the AI is choosing the best protocol, the AI is choosing the best embryo. Can this help reduce disparities? I think the authors really say it best that access to care issues are multifaceted and AI potentially offers one tool among many. So I think my takeaway is AI in the right hands, as we always say, AI in the right hands in the setting of an effort, a really concerted effort to reduce costs for patients and increase access for patients could potentially be beneficial. But I think it's all too easy that the cost of setting it up and and getting it going could really fall on our patients. And the eventual profits when we're increasing efficiency may not actually reduce IVF cycle costs and may end up in a different set of hands than the patients. In my state, we really do have an access to care issue. Not only do we not have mandated insurance coverage, we also just don't have enough clinics and providers to meet our need. And we have pretty long wait lists to get patients into care. So I'm at least hopeful about the promise of AI, very cautiously hopeful, and that this could improve efficiency in cycles and get more patients into care. But what do you guys think? Is there a role for AI in improving access to fertility care? And do you think it could actually reduce healthcare disparities? Look, let me just start by saying, I know I pumped the AI story last episode, so I'm not, I'm not totally anti-AI, but I'm a little jaded about AI lately because you just hear about it every day. And it's all, it's a lot about the positive. Oh, in the future, we're going to do this and AI and fix this, fix that, fix the other thing. I am a more, I'd say, practical, realistic view, cynical maybe, that like the more likely low-hanging fruit for AI and IVF is the algorithm that decides the patient's not to treat because it hurts the numbers. And I feel like that is the, the more realistic way that, sadly, that people would choose to apply AI in the short term is which patients to exclude, because I think that that is what's going to give the real economic returns, maybe, or I don't know what the returns are in there. You guys could say better than I, but I, I think that the bad actors, as you alluded to there in your the end of your summary, are going to get a hold of this and and make it it's it's murky i'd say for all the positive i think there's a lot of negative i think the thing that we don't talk about enough with ai and particularly how it relates to disparities is that so much of big data that's being collected is coming from pretty white western european upper middle class data sources right like who are we not measuring when we're building some of these data sets and what's the what are we missing and when we apply some of this some of these algorithms to patients who are not included in this kind of the denominator of the data sets do the same rules apply are we getting it right are we just getting it right for a very small group of white northern european men and women that's always my concern when we talk about ai in our field they're already an underrepresented group when it comes to outcomes like how few papers out there look at like african-american pacific islander hispanic women and their outcomes in art it never looks at that right so that's always the hesitation I have about AI is going to cure cancer and, and make everything better. Yeah, I certainly think that there eventually could be a role with AI. It sounds conceptually really nice. And of course, we all really want to improve access to care. And I, I agree, there's a lot of things to really consider, hence why this is a consider this article. We, of course, have all these calculators and algorithms, one of which I think actually Randy Goldman, is, she has a 
egg freezing calculator out there. So interestingly and ironically enough, as we're talking about one of her papers. So yeah, at the end of the day, easier said than done. So perhaps an important role in the future. But of course, there's a lot of different things to consider, as Pietro and Dalen had just mentioned. I think that algorithmovigilance has a long way to go. You know how in the show Bluey, they have names for different episodes? I think this one should be called Algorithmic Vigilance. (laughs) Blake! I think I'll need to get my bass out and do a cover. Here we are, talking about you getting your bass out again. It's going to happen. Well, that's all the time we have for today, guys. Um, Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of FNS Unplugged. We'll be with you next month, not tomorrow. For Molly's sake, we can't just keep recording these on a daily basis. But we're glad that you guys have been enjoying listening to the podcast. We hope that you've been checking out the FNS on-air main podcast as well. If there are ever kind of comments, questions, suggestions for the format of the show, the content we cover, the way we cover it, we welcome that feedback. You can email us at furtstert at gmail.com and just send a note. and It'll make sure it gets to us. And uh, if you just want to send a nice note that you like the way Dalon's voice sounds or you like the emails that Blake receives during the podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, take care. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Molly Cornfield. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect Fertility and Sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.